The following message is from the 2016 IBCD Summer Institute. Disordered Desires, Bringing Grace to Modern Sexuality. Well, good morning. This workshop is Legal Challenges and Changes, What You Need to Know. My name is Deborah Dewart. I'm an attorney in both California and North Carolina. The Constitution promises liberty to all within its reach, a liberty that includes certain specific rights that allows persons within a lawful realm to define and express their identity. Now, what in the world is that all about, and where did that come from? I first heard that sentence a year ago, almost to the very day. I came to IBCD last year, and when I came in on Friday morning, I began to hear rumblings that the Supreme Court had announced its opinion on the marriage cases and that it had gone the wrong way. When the morning break came, I got in my car and I rushed down to Staples, got on one of their computers, spent a small fortune printing out the decision so that I could read it on the meal break, which I did. I read the whole enchilada. And when I came back here to the church campus, I walked past Elise Fitzpatrick, and I said to her, I have work to do. (laughs) And I immediately wanted to correct myself and say, we have work to do. Not only Christian lawyers, and believe me, I've had a lot of extra work to do because of that opinion that was issued a year ago, but all of us in the Christian community, and certainly biblical counselors who minister to people uh, with compassion, people who have struggled with same-sex attractions, but there are also Christians who face new challenges and growing challenges. There were already challenges before this opinion came out. And sometimes I'd like to do what Justice Scalia mentioned in his dissent. His dissents have always been good for comic relief. He said if he ever joined an opinion that began with the sentence I just read you, from, which was the first sentence of the opinion, he said I, he would hide his head in a bag. Well, there are times when I'd really like to hide my head in a bag and, and wish away some of the stuff that's going on in our culture. But we can't do that. That opinion has had implications for our culture as a whole, which is the context in which you counsel people. And it's created new challenges, not only legal challenges, but just other kinds of challenges with our families and our friends. And there may be some changes, probably are some changes that you should consider making in the way that you operate and structure your counseling ministry. Well, first of all, the culture. The opinion impacts how the culture thinks about marriage and family. We have a whole new definition of marriage. That's really what the opinion was about. It wasn't about legalizing same-sex marriage. I kind of cringe when I hear that phrase because marriage, as God defined it, is, and we know is a one man and one woman. 
but our culture thinks differently now and defines things differently. We live in a culture of political correctness that is largely about rights, individual rights. And a lot of those rights are not the inalienable rights given by our creator, like the right to worship and serve God according to conscience, but they're rights to really to death instead of life, rights to abortion, to assisted suicide. I understand California has recently passed a law for that and rights to live sexually immoral lifestyles, and it's become an entitlement mentality. We've had a whole string of cases about the Obamacare mandate that health insurance plans include free, free access to contraception and abortion-producing drugs. That battle has been largely successful on our side, but it's still ongoing. And the rights that are being created now in our culture seem to not, no longer be linked to responsibilities. We have the right to worship and serve God in our Constitution because we have a responsibility. So we have the right to fulfill that responsibility. But our culture is thinking differently. There are a lot of things that we need to think about and talk about with other believers, our counselees, and others in our church. Uh, For example, we have the right to free speech in our Constitution, and that's been a wonderful way to set precedent for religious liberty because a lot of our religious exercise in the culture has to do with speech. But, uh, But the First Amendment protects a very broad range of speech, even profanity, so it goes beyond what the Bible would protect. The Bible has a lot to say about speech. So we can talk and think about some of these rights in comparison to what the Bible gives us. And sometimes now in our culture, speaking the truth in love about marriage and sexuality may be branded hate speech. I was talking to George Scipione on the way in yesterday, and he said, He's telling pastors if they preach through the book of Romans, there may come a day when they spend some time in jail and have an evangelistic ministry from inside. Another thing to really think about with some of your counselees and other Christians is when do we assert our rights, our right to religious liberty, and when do we lay down our rights? There's a time for both. Jesus Christ laid down his rights in order to die for our sins. So there are times to sacrifice and not necessarily assert our right to to the nth degree. But on the other hand, sometimes Christians have filed lawsuits in order to set good precedent to keep our freedom of speech so that we can preach the gospel freely and talk about the Bible freely. We've had an incredible freedom in in America since our founding. The other th- another thing to think about is discrimination. When do we discriminate, for example? Um, there are a lot of challenges that I'll mention today with the homosexual agenda, especially wedding vendors. There are, for example, cake, cake bakers who have declined to bake cakes for a same-sex marriage ceremony. 
So when do we need to draw the line and say, I can't do that, it violates the word of God, it violates my conscience? And when can we evangelize? For example, a Christian might own a restaurant. And certainly you want to open your doors and let anybody in. Our churches, we let anybody come in and worship. We want people to come in and worship. But at some point, for example, the rest, restaurant owner might decline to cater a same-sex ceremony. But just simply serving someone a meal, that doesn't violate any kind of biblical principle. So there's situations where we have to decide when, when do we need to discriminate and when do we have the opportunity to evangelize. And according to conscience, one person's conscience may be a little different than someone else's. So this is something to think about and talk about. So that we can let our light shine in a culture that is just filled with chaos and crisis and confusion. I kind of got on a roll with words that start with C. Why in the world do we care about these issues? Why can't we just live in a little Christian bubble and separate ourselves and wait for Jesus to return? And there are people that would like to do that or, or, or do actually try to do that. Well, we do need to care. In fact, I remember seeing a little book called You Will Be Made to Care. We all will. Well, for one thing, of course, we need to be salt and light in a fallen world. We need to shine in the darkness. We need to address sin. Abortion. We've got little babies that are being aborted. We want to help give them life and help the young women. We've got crisis pregnancy centers, and they're being subjected to some new legal challenges, especially in California is one place, especially where they're those are being challenged. So there are times we need to get involved in the legal sphere in order to continue doing those ministries. And to protect our children and the culture and and the climate that children are growing up in now has a different definition of marriage, a different definition of family than what we are accustomed to in past generations. So that's another reason to be involved and not to just simply hide. Sometimes you have to defend against litigation. You might have a counselee who is faced with a legal challenge because of their stand for the gospel or their stand for marriage as one man and one woman. So sometimes you have to defend a lawsuit. And sometimes we need to support other believers who are faced with such litigation. And we speak for those who cannot speak for themselves, like the children in the womb. And sometimes we need to even file a lawsuit in order to maintain the freedom that we have to spread the gospel. What kind of legal challenges could your counselees face in the public square? And you might face some, too. Legal mandates that require an act against conscience. One of the big issues here is anti-discrimination laws. Um, Anti-discrimination laws now, off in many states, and California is one of them, include sexual orientation and gender identity. So we've got the transgender issues now, too. 
So these kinds of lawsuits have been applied against Christian business owners. And down the road, what that, those challenges will probably expand. And I'll say a little bit more about those later. We have attacks on the right to life, as I've mentioned, the crisis pregnancy centers. And just more generally, we have hostility to the Christian faith in our public schools, universities, sometimes in the workplace. Not always easy to let your light shine. People have faced loss of employment or even a professional license. I'll mention a case here that I wrote a brief for several years ago. A Christian student in a graduate counseling program in psychology, which this is biblical counseling, but this was a Christian who could not in good conscience counsel a homosexual man about a same-sex relationship and affirm that relationship. So she, as graciously as she could, said, I need to refer this to another student counselor. This student, this was a straight-A student on the eve of graduation, and this was a practical experience in actual counseling that she had to do in order to graduate. The school expelled her because she could not affirm the homosexual agenda. She filed a lawsuit with the help of a group called Alliance Defending Freedom, which I will mention again later. And the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals said tolerance is a two-way street. And so the case was settled successfully. And some, so filing that lawsuit is an example of a case where it helped other people along the way. But that could have meant the loss of her professional license if she had gotten licensed as a counselor. Now, biblical counselors who are not licensed by the state have an opportunity to minister God's word and not be accountable to a state that is hostile to the faith. So that's a good thing right now. So believers are facing lawsuits, sometimes crippling government fines and penalties. There is a case, I think it was Oregon, where a bakery was forced out of business and fined $135,000 for refusing to bake a cake for two women who wanted to get married, quote-unquote. So these fines are, of course, and loss of a business. There's going to be, if that were somebody in your church, those people are going to need help, not just counseling, but maybe financial help, maybe help finding another job or setting up another business. And when people go through litigation, Litigation is very draining financially, spiritually, emotionally. It's just one of the most horrendous things you can go through. I've seen it as a lawyer. I try to stay out of litigation. (laughs) I write friend of the court briefs. But if somebody's talking to me about filing a lawsuit on anything, I, I try to advise them to count the cost because it's so crippling and so draining to have to go through litigation. And then there are also physical and verbal threats that people face in the public square just for affirming marriage as the union of a man and a woman, no matter how gracious you are. And of course, it's important for us as Christians to be as kind, to speak the truth as in love, 
be as gracious and compassionate as we can, but without compromising the word of God. That in itself is a challenge. How can you help? Well, you can mobilize prayer support, certainly, and other kinds of ministry. If somebody in your church is going through litigation, they might need childcare, they might need meals, there are all kinds of things they might, kinds of practical help that they might need that your church members can do. You might need to refer them to a Christian attorney or a legal defense organization for representation. More about that later. You want to encourage that person to remain faithful and trust the Lord. And I think about the book of Job. Even if you're doing the right thing, it can be very challenging. And of course, you want to be able to give wise counsel to other people. Help him to know when to obey God rather than men. And it's not always easy to draw the line. There, I've heard a Christian say that if he was a cake baker and asked to bake a cake for a same-sex ceremony, he'd bake the best cake he could make in order to show the love of God to those people. But there are other people who say, I just can't do it because I'm using my creative talents to endorse something that is contrary to the word of God. So you have to help people um, to learn where to draw that line. How do you love your enemies in this particular situation? I always think about, as I'm doing this work, Ephesians 6, our battle is not against flesh and blood. The people that are trapped in homosexuality or transgenderism, those are captives, those are people who are enslaved to some kind of sin, and we want to minister to them. We want them to come to know the Lord and to know the freedom and the salvation that he offers. So the real enemy is not those human beings. But on a human level, often, you know, their enemies may be in the courtroom opposing counsels such as that. So how do we love our enemies? Help your counselees be ready to give an answer for the hope that's in them. Someone might see that that person is, is hopeful and is staying calm in the face of crippling litigation. They need to be ready to give an answer. And, of course, you want to help avoid the usual things like anger, anxiety, bitterness, despair. It's so easy to get, uh, to get angry in today's culture. I see, I see a lot of that. People are discouraged about what's happening. And thankfully, we know that the Lord is in control, but it's not always easy to remember that. Okay. I want to talk a little bit about the case that the Supreme Court decided last June. And it is an opinion about what the law requires. Um, the name of it is Obergefell v. Hodges. Strange name. And there are several things that supreme errors that characterize this opinion that I wanted to mention here. And I don't want to make this into a law school class, but just a little, a few words about the case itself. One of the foundations of this opinion was human autonomy. As you heard in that first sentence, the right to define and express your identity. Well, if you look at the Bi- what the Bible says, that's the essence of sin. That's exactly what Adam and Adam and Eve wanted to do: is define themselves and ex- 
apart from God. And the end of the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That's exactly what we see happening today. This opinion is a redefinition. It, it redefines marriage for legal purposes. Of course, we can't really redefine marriage, but for legal purposes, that's what they were doing. And when you redefine marriage, you're also redefining family. You've got children involved. There are same-sex couples raising children together now. And of course, two men or two women cannot really have a child in the natural way. So they adopt children or they have to use some artificial means. Two men have got to use a surrogate or two women have got to use artificial insemination, but they, they have to do something. But you've got children being raised in this kind of culture. You might have a counselee who has been raised by two men or two women. And, and when the Supreme Court was considering this case, there were some of those adult children who wrote briefs for the court and said things like, we love our two moms or two dads, but we missed that parent of the other sex. So you may be called upon to counsel somebody who's been in that situation. Or, who knows, there may be a man or a woman who's been in a same-sex relationship who becomes a believer. And now, and maybe, maybe there are children involved and they want to draw their children out of that lifestyle and give them the gospel. That could be a real interesting counseling situation if you run into it. A lot of counseling opportunities here. They've also redefined equality in a sense. Our Declaration of Independence talks about being endowed by our creator. We've been created equal and we're endowed by him with certain inalienable rights. Equality has now come to mean special privileges for people with certain sexual preferences. Liberty has been redefined. Justice Thomas and his dissent pointed out that liberty has meant freedom from government coercion, whereas in this case, it's a demand for government benefits. There's that entitlement mentality again. Reality has been redefined, and that's where you see the, the transgenderism these days, which we've, uh, the speaker last night talked a little bit about that. We have a man, Bruce Jenner, saying, I'm really a woman, and we have a lot, we're seeing a lot of that in the news these days, and we have the whole battle with the bathrooms now, and other kinds of private facilities, so there's a redefinition of reality, and last night, the speaker said there was a man who wanted to become a dragon, (laughs) so, or identify as a dragon, I remember I saw someone on Facebook post kind of a humorous thing that I think I'm going to identify as a billionaire and see how far that gets me. And I wrote back and said, well, I think I want to identify as a Supreme Court justice. I'll put on a black robe, just jump up there. I wonder how far that would get me. It would probably get me right out the door with, in a set of cuffs. There's a meaninglessness to what the court has done, too. Marriage now, the way they have redefined it, it's any loving, committed relationship between two people. 
Well, think about that for a minute. I'm sure you can think of a lot of loving, committed relationships between two people that are not marriages, two brothers, a mother and a daughter, I mean, any parent and child, a grandmother and a grandson. And yet, believe it or not, you, know, you can't make this stuff up. I saw an article, and I put it in my brief for the court, about a grandmother and a grandson who were biologically related, who had met each other. There had been an adoption in the intervening generation. Anyway, this grandmother and grandson had fallen in love and were getting married. And they were going to have a baby. Now, the grandmother was too old, so, of course, they had to use some artificial means to make that happen. But that's, like I said, you can't make this stuff up. Next thing you know, it's going to be something maybe other than a human or some number other than two. Because there's no limiting principle in the way the court decided this case. And, in fact, there is a gentleman, a man, who kept trying to intervene in the marriage cases because he wanted to marry his computer. And, again, you can't make that stuff up. He said he had become addicted to pornography on the computer, so he wanted to marry his computer, and he kept filing briefs wanting to intervene in the marriage cases, and they never let him do that, but this is just how ridiculous it really gets. Then we've got oppression, opposing views such as we hold in the church are being silenced, they're being crushed through various ways, and some of the things I've already talked about are ways of doing that, fines and penalties and lawsuits. And what we end up with is a great reversal. Things that were considered wrong were viewed as wrong and even illegal and are criminal. Homosexual acts were criminal criminal until just a few years ago. And the Supreme Court knocked that down in a different case. So we've gone from a crime to a civil right in just a few years. Same thing with abortion. I went from a crime to a civil right in a few years. So what was once considered wrong is now morally and legally considered right. So things have been really turned completely upside down. Just a little bit of legalese here. Um, the Obergefell opinion is a, an attack on the structure of our government. When the founders wrote our Constitution, they separated powers. We have the legislative branch that makes the laws, the executive branch that executes the laws, and the judicial branch, the courts, they're supposed to interpret the laws. As Justice Roberts said in his dissent, the Supreme Court is not a legislature, but that's exactly what they were trying to be when they wrote this opinion. It's also an attack on the way we've structured the federal government versus the states. The Constitution grants the federal government only certain specific powers. Well, States have always regulated and defined marriage. And they regulate it in terms of age and um, incest, things like that, other kinds, of num- other kinds of limitations. And just three years ago, when the Supreme Court 
decided the case about the Defense of Marriage Act over and over. Justice Kennedy wrote that, and Justice Kennedy wrote Obergefell. Over and over, he said, marriage is a state issue. The states define marriage. That just went right out the window with Obergefell. So consistency and logic are not a highlight of this case. And democracy, even though, of course, the people, even the people cannot redefine marriage. Marriage was defined by God. It predates human government. So really, even the people cannot redefine marriage. But the people in most of the states were concerned enough about this issue to amend their state constitutions to protect and preserve the definition of marriage as one man and one woman. So the Supreme Court blew that off, too. It's also an attack on our freedom of religion and speech. Now, when you talk about marriage, what does it mean? As I read the opinion last year on the dinner break here at this church, I was looking for some glimmer of hope that would protect religious liberty, and I did find a short statement, which I'll read and it's in your outline here, religions and those who adhere to religious doctrines may continue to advocate with utmost sincere conviction that by divine precepts, same-sex marriage should not be condoned. The First Amendment ensures that religious organizations and persons are given proper protection as they seek to teach the principles that are so fulfilling and so central to their lives and faiths and to their own deep aspirations to continue the family structure they have long revered. Well, that gave me a little... I mean, I was really looking for some hope, and so that gave me a little teeny tiny bit of hope when I read that. But I went on to read the four dissents, and I understand from an attorney friend who was in the court the day the opinion was announced that Justice Roberts read his dissent from the bench. That never happens. They don't read dissents from the bench, but this one they did. Justice Roberts pointed out that the First Amendment guarantees the freedom to exercise religion. Ominously, that is not a word the majority uses. And the free exercise is a big concern right now. It isn't merely the ability to teach in our churches or to talk like we're doing right here at this conference, but to exercise religion. Justice Thomas warned of what he called potentially ruinous consequences for religious liberty. Yep, that's for sure. And Justice Alito, he said, I assume that those who cling to old beliefs will be able to whisper their thoughts in the recesses of their homes or maybe at a church conference. But if they repeat those views in public, uh uh-oh, we're in public, they will risk being labeled as bigots and treated as such by governments, employers, and schools. And indeed, that's what we see happening. We see many conscience conflicts. You might have read about um, the county clerk in Kentucky last fall, Kim Davis, who had been a clerk for, I think, 30 years. She'd become a Christian, and she said, I cannot in good conscience have my name 
on a marriage license that's issued to a same-sex couple. She ended up in jail for her refusal to put her name on those licenses. Now, that has been resolved successfully. She's still a clerk. I think they got a new governor, so that's good news. Every once in a while, there's some good news, and hooray. But in North Carolina, where I live, in the Bible Belt, where Billy Graham is from, we passed a law right after Obergefell that a conscience protection law that would protect magistrates, judges who cannot in good conscience affirm or do a same-sex ceremony or sign a license. And right away, the ACLU went to court and filed a lawsuit against that law. So that's still going on. There's, there's so many lawsuits, I'll tell you what, it's hard to keep up with them all. Right on the front lines are Christians who provide wedding services. You've got your cake bakers, photographers, florists, bed and breakfast owners, and I got churches in parentheses. Um, so far, well, I have not seen a church sued, and I think for a while <laughs> we're okay, but who knows? Things have happened at such a rapid pace that it's unbelievable. But I would like to tell you about one case about a florist that is just such a wonderful example of a Christian. A 70-year-old lady in the state of Washington, florist, had served a homosexual man as a customer for many years. And he liked her. They were friends, and they didn't agree with one another, but she served him. She didn't discriminate against him because of his sexual orientation. However, when he wanted to marry another man, she respectfully said, I'm so sorry, but I can't do that because it violates my Christian faith. He understood, but his partner did not, nor did the Attorney General of the state of Washington. And that woman is still undergoing litigation. It's gone on for months. And so there's an example, a very gracious lady who's tried to minister to someone going through this litigation, and they want to take her personal assets as well as her business. That's really scary. And a real, also an opportunity to be a light in a dark world. And again... Obergefell has impacted the way the culture defines and thinks about marriage. And people who, like us who support biblical marriage are being branded as hateful and as bigots. And children, there's, there's real challenges as to what children are taught in the public, especially in the public schools. There are movements to teach children at a very early age and to have introduced storybooks with two prints princes or, you know, two people of the same sex. And there are also some legal bans on what they call reparative therapy um, in California and New Jersey, and there have been challenges to these laws. But a licensed professional counselor now cannot legally help a person under age 18 with unwanted same-sex attractions, even if that minor and his or her parents want that help. 
can't do it. But those are state licensed counselors. And Heath Lambert, who's the director of ACBC, the Association of Certified Biblical Counselors, he had some interesting comments on reparative therapy, and I agree with him that our goal as Christians is not simply for that person to become heterosexual, but for that person to become more like Christ and to serve Christ. That was a wonderful talk that we heard last night. There are also impacts on codes of professional ethics. Even for lawyers and judges, the American Bar Association wants to rewrite some of the code of professional ethics, the model code, to preclude anything that would be discriminatory on the basis of sexual orientation. There's a judge in Alabama, Roy Moore, who has been very faithful on this issue, and he may lose his place on the bench. There's a judge in Minnesota who simply uh, stated in public that she could not in good conscience officiate at a same-sex ceremony, and that's not even part of her job. She doesn't even do weddings. She just made a statement of her personal beliefs. And there's a movement to try to remove her from her position and make sure she never is a judge again. So this kind of, there's some pretty serious things happening there. Meanwhile, we have gone from the bedroom to the bathroom to the courtroom. In North Carolina, where I'm from, we now have a kind of a spider web of lawsuits. The city of Charlotte passed an ordinance that would have required all businesses open to the public and possibly even churches to open their bathrooms so that you could use whatever bathroom corresponded to your gender identity. So if a man felt like he was a woman really inside, he could go in the woman's, women's bathrooms. And not only bathrooms, this also applied to shower facilities and locker rooms and uh, overnight field trips with public school students, a lot of things. Well, our legislature, which is very conservative, and our state doesn't protect sexual orientation against discrimination, they got busy and they passed a bill. And now any government-owned buildings need to have a, a men's room and a ladies' room. Those kinds of f- private facilities must be separated on the basis of biological sex. Private businesses and nonprofits and churches, they're free to set whatever policy they like. Well, the homosexual community got up in arms about that, and so the ACLU and another group filed a lawsuit almost immediately to have that law declared unconstitutional. Meanwhile, the Department of Justice gave our governor an ultimatum about repealing the law. So, on May the 9th, our governor sued the Department of Justice. Our General Assembly sued the Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice sued our state. So there's three lawsuits in one day, plus the ACLU. That's four lawsuits. The next day... And my name's on the line on this one as local counsel for Alliance Defending Freedom. A group of public school students and parents, in the case of minor students, formed an association called the North Carolinians for Privacy 
filed a lawsuit saying this ultimatum from the Department of Justice violates our privacy rights and our rights to direct the upbringing of our children. Because here you've got public school students, you know, young girls having to undress for their physical education classes, and they don't know if some boy is going to walk in saying, I feel like a girl today. Because all it takes for this gender identity is for either the student or a parent to notify the school. There's no medical diagnosis required. There's no change in clothing or appearance or anything like that. It's just a boy can walk in and to notify the school, hey, I'm, I feel like a girl. It's very subjective. There's no criteria. Very frightening things. So we've got this spider web of intertwining lawsuits. We'll see where, stay tuned. You'll probably hear about it on the news. Meanwhile, but down in South Carolina, a girl in a public school decided that she was really a boy. The school did everything they could to accommodate her and give her the use of, the, of a private bathroom. But she sued the school. And now the Fourth Circuit Federal Court of Appeals has decided that suit can go forward. So that's not good news, and North Carolina is, would, those cases would go to the same circuit, but it's not over yet. Meanwhile, there's a lawsuit in Illinois, and then Texas and 10 other states filed another lawsuit. So there are all kinds of lawsuits going on about bathrooms. Uh, so there's a challenge. And again, you might have a distraught parent in your church say, hey, my child goes to public school, we can't afford to do homeschooling or private school, and we've got this issue with the bathrooms. So, really, really scary. There are also a number of challenges in our culture about the sanctity of life. Now, I think I've already mentioned the abortion pill mandate and the insurance plans and there just was a there was a string of lawsuits, and they're still going on. And the penalties at stake could have put a private business or even a ministry could have put them out of business. Little Sisters of the Poor. I can't think of a group less amenable to free contraception. I mean, I just can't think of one. <laughs> so they were a good one to lead the charge to the Supreme Court. And the for-profit employers actually had a victory first. But these kinds of things are going on. And I believe in California, there's a mandate that all health insurance plans cover surgical abortions. So there's another one. And there are lawsuits also going with the pregnancy crisis, crisis pregnancy centers. They're facing some pretty ridiculous disclosure laws. The ones that provide ultrasounds and some limited medical services, they have to tell women, give in, women information about where they can go to get a free or a low-cost abortion. So that's totally contrary to their whole reason for being there, which is to help young women make other kinds of choices and give them alternatives to abortion. So there's lawsuits going on that too. And there are other kinds of challenges. We had a case, there was a case here in San Diego about yoga in the public schools. And yoga really is rooted in Hinduism. If 
you want to know more about that, go down to the exhibit for Truth Exchange and talk to Mary Weller or Rebecca Jones about that. But that's another, another issue. And, of course, we've got sex education. And even in North Carolina right now, we're fighting another little battle there because there's a group called Shift North Carolina. It's a nonprofit. They've got a big grant from the Center for Disease Control, the federal government, to do sex education in the public schools, supposedly to reduce teen pregnancy. But what they're doing is bringing in teachings that are frightening. And then there's Common Core. I'm not even going to go into that, but that's... <laughs> if you're a teacher or you, or you counsel somebody who's a teacher, that's another issue that we have. Well, how can you protect your ministry? Because... Even your ministry, could, you know, there's some challenges that you could have. There are a couple of major things that I want to say about that. First of all, churches have the greatest level of First Amendment protection. I heard even the very liberal Justice Kagan recently say churches are special. The Supreme Court unanimously affirmed a doctrine called church autonomy several years ago. So if you can possibly structure your counseling ministry under a church rather than a separate nonprofit, do it. And if, you're, if you've already got a separate nonprofit and it's feasible to move that over under a church, I would recommend that. And this is contrary to the kind of legal advice I have tended to give over the years. Usually when you've got a high-risk activity like counseling or daycare center, usually a separate corporation is a good thing to do with a separate board so that you've spread the risk out. Not here. Much better if you're operating under the ordained leadership of a church. And if you really need to have a separate organization for some reason there might be some creative things that you could do maybe with several churches going together but uh, churches have the the highest level in your governing documents it's really important that you spell out your religious doctrine very important it's important now to define marriage any kind of bylaws you have Written policies, if you want to build, even church churches need to do this for the use of their facilities. One of the ways the anti-discrimination laws catch people is if something is considered a place of public accommodation. That's kind of an, it's an important buzzword to remember. And of course, your counseling ministry, you may want to reach out to the community you're going to have to put some kind of fence around it. Same thing with your churches. If you open your doors for weddings or wedding receptions, you're going to need to put a religious fence around it, have some criteria so that it's not just come one and all. And one important point I would mention there is that there's a difference between the people who represent your ministry, like your, your church session, your board of directors, your leaders, your counselors, your employees, your volunteers, and the people you minister to, which I've maybe your beneficiaries. 
So the people you counsel or, you know, other kinds of ministries like crisis pregnancy centers. They minister to pregnant, young pregnant women. So they, they don't typically have a religious requirement for the people they minister to, but for the people who are making the decisions and representing the ministry, it's important that you have some religious criteria for them. And for your counselees, and I've done workshops on this, it's good to have some kind of informed consent for them to sign so that they know exactly what they're getting into. And you may want to minister to somebody who's an openly homosexual or who has a family member that is. And, and that's wonderful. They just need to understand that in your counseling that you're not going to compromise what God's word says about marriage. Now, who are you going to call if you get in trouble? Um, I think most of you picked up a pink sheet in the back. There's, a, there's some resources that I listed on the outline there, but I got the bright idea to expand those a little bit because there's so many organizations, which is good news. There are organizations that are state-specific, and there's some that are more national, and they have different purposes. If you're involved in litigation, Alliance Defending Freedom is a wonderful organization that does work nationwide. I'm one of their many allies, although I'm not employed by them. Here in Southern California, there's the Advocates for Faith and Freedom over in Murrieta. So there's different ones that are local. If you want to look at more detailed information about protecting your ministry, in your notebook, there is a something, a publication called Protecting Your Ministry. That's from Alliance Defending Freedom. And so that, that can be very helpful. And it might be more helpful to... Some of these things might be more helpful to your lawyer than you may not want to sit and read a 20-page document about legalist, legal things, but if you do, that's fine, but you might not. Christian Legal Society has some great resources on their website, too, so there's some good organizations. There's a publication called the Church Law and Tax Report that's on the pink sheet. And they have a publication every couple of months, and they cover all kinds of legal issues that impact churches and other kinds of nonprofits. And a lot of these organizations um, have pages on Facebook, and they have email lists, so you can actually be bombarded by these things if you want to. I get so many of them that I can't read them all every single day. And there's some also some books that you can couple of books. One I wrote back in 2010, and it's now really more of a history book, but it was to help non-lawyer Christians understand how we got where we are today. It's called Death of a Christian Nation, and I wish I could now write one called Resurrection of a Christian Nation, but not yet. And that one is available down in the bookstore or on Amazon. You can get a lot, you can get it really cheap on Amazon. Um, there's also, <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of a woman named Rosaria Butterfield. Wonderful book. Um, she was a very radical, lesbian, anti-Christian English professor. And through a very compassionate, caring friendship with a pastor and his wife, 
She became a believer. She speaks at some of these conference, many of these conferences. She is now the wife of a conservative Presbyterian pastor, has four children and homeschools, and is a very gracious, kind lady. So amazing transformation. I love stories like that about what God can do in the midst of all of this chaos. So that's a good note to end. I also have on there at the very end, I want to leave room for some questions. I have a little section called Supreme Court Tragedies and Triumphs. There's some good decisions that have come down, like the one about church autonomy, and there's some disastrous ones like Obergefell. So on that note, um, we have a few minutes here for questions. Yes. Well, that one, okay, she, the question has to do with what about the signs you often see about the right to refuse service? Well, those have been around for a long time, but some of these states have made laws saying you can't refuse service on the basis of, for example, sexual orientation. So they've got all these categories, and it started with... um, Racial discrimination, and of course we don't want racial discrimination, absolutely. Um, And so it started out well-intentioned, but the categories have expanded so that now we've got things like sexual orientation and gender identity. And so you could refuse service on some other basis, like if someone, a customer was rowdy or, you know, and disturbing the peace or something like that, but you but not on the basis of sexual orientation. And those are often state-specific laws. These cases are often in state court rather than federal court. Okay, another question. Okay, for the tape, um, someone that's asking a question has a recovery ministry for not only drugs and alcohol, but other kinds of things that people want to change in their lives. And let's say that someone comes in who is a homosexual or transgender or whatever. That's where it's so important to distinguish between your ministry's policies, the people who represent your ministry, which would be you are one of the people who represents your ministry. I don't know if you have a 
employees or volunteers or board of directors as opposed to the people you minister to. And what you have to make clear if someone comes in is here's who we are and, you know, you're welcome, but, you know, that you can't compromise. You don't have to compromise what you believe. And that, yeah, that sounds like a relig- definitely religious ministry. Yes, yes. And I don't know if it's underneath a church. That's another thing that's important to know. It is underneath a church? Yes, yes that's good. <laughs> that's very good. Now, if you were a licensed, state-licensed counselor and you were going to counsel somebody about same-sex attractions, then you get into some of these laws, but... Keep the state licensing out, operate under a church, and here's what, what our standards are, what we believe, and then we're happy to minister to you. And thank you for that question. All right. Okay, you and then you. Oh, thank you. Someone's asking about an informed consent form. On your outline, my email is on there somewhere at the bottom, I believe. Email me and ask me, and I'll send it to you. Now, I'm admitted to the bar in California and in North Carolina. So um, if you're in California, a lot of you probably are from California, being as that's where we are. I can give you something state-specific. If it's another state, it's going to be kind of generic and you would want to go to a local attorney and see if there's anything in your state law that needs to be changed. Okay, and then you here in the... Yeah, my question was, I don't know if you saw that Oregon State is recognized as their gender legally. Oregon has recognized a third gender. No, I didn't see that. And But I, why am I not surprised? I I, I I believe that there are... There are all kinds of genders that people have managed to make up these days. Okay. Um, within, uh, so for instance, I have a friend who's within the church, leads like a home Bible study community group, um, does ministry there, but then also he's a professional state licensed psychiatrist. Uh, mm-hmm. Oh, boy. That's a real can't. Okay, the question has to do with you have people in your congregation who are licensed, like a psychiatrist or maybe another licensed professional, and they're also lay leaders. That gets real specific. I would be real cautious about having them counsel people one-on-one. Now, if you're leading a home Bible study and you're going through a book of the Bible, that's... I don't see as much of a problem there, but if you're counseling one-on-one, you could have a problem. It might be, unless they renounce those credentials. And I've seen that happen, by the way. That's, um, I went to seminary out here at Westminster as a result of taking classes at IBCD, which was then CCEF West. Anyway, there was a, a man there who 
um, Andy Peterson. He called himself a recovering psychologist, but he had been state licensed and then saw the sufficiency of scripture. And because of that, by the way, that's another thing I do. One of the assignments was to write a critique of a Christian psychologist and a critique of a secular psychologist, and I did that and got on a roll and went to seminary, and there's a whole website on that to christiandiscernment.com if you're interested in exploring that issue more. But, yeah, there are some problems there, and we're out of time, but you know what I look like now. I will be hanging around, and my email's on there, and if you have more questions, I'd love to answer them. Thank you very much. Copyright 2016, IBCD, all rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.